Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we're talking about a topic which doesn't seem to make the headlines anymore, that is Syria. After a decade of devastating conflict and death and a string of international efforts to end the Assad regime, Assad is still in power without any concessions or reforms. While we see US disengagement, there is significant regional re-engagement and Syria has basically become a a failed state with 90% of the population living below the poverty line, according to the UN. These developments are very likely to have an impact on Europe, even if they are below the headlines at the moment. And that's why we want to look at the situation on the ground to explore what Europeans should do today. And we have an all-star cast to help us make sense of that. I'm very happy to welcome Basma Kodmani, who's a member of the opposition delegation for peace negotiations and a member of the Constitutional Committee for Syria, as well as being a senior fellow at the Institut Montaigne and a council member at ECFR. Second up, with almost as long a title, we have Ralph Haddad, the coordinator of advocacy and research at a Syrian NGO called Basme Zetune for Relief and Development. And finally, last but not least, back to the podcast, we have Julian Barnes-Dacey, who's header of our Middle East and North Africa program. Thank you all very much for joining. So why don't we start with the situation in Syria, um, Basma? Why don't you tell us a bit more about what life is on the ground there? Where are we with the Syrian peace process? Well, to describe the situation on the ground, I think everyone now in all areas of Syria is in the most dire uh, humanitarian situation we have known. And I include here the areas that are covered, that cover the constituency of Assad's regime. Uh, one hour electricity a day, no food, no oil, no nothing is is available. No fuel, nothing is available in any of the areas north or where the Assad regime controls. So this is the everyday life for Syrians: is uh, looking for bread, looking queuing for fuel, and uh, and waiting for electricity to recharge uh, any uh, uh, any of their uh, needs. Uh, the, the, the on the on the ground, there is a very interesting development which has now is now confirmed. There is a cooperation between the United States and Russia, and this is uh, on two issues. One is humanitarian: how do we ensure unfettered access to all areas of Syria for humanitarian aid? although this is going through the Assad regime increasingly, and that's very problematic. And the second is a dialogue between the regime and the Kurdish areas northeast of Syria, which is the source of all wealth of of Syria and the economic viability of Syria, controlled by the Kurdish forces. And this dialogue is blessed by both the United States and uh, conducted by Russia, uh, with the Syrian regime. This is a, an important development. It is, a, I think, a significant one that may change the picture on the ground over the medium term. And what about the, the international picture? We're seeing the sort of the US clearly deprioritizing Syria, Europeans talking about it much less than they have in earlier times. But at the same time, there has been quite a lot going on between the different regional actors. Could, Basma, could you maybe explain a bit more what this re-engagement looks like and, and what it means? 
Well, I I would say, first of all, the United States is clearly uh, saying to Russia, we don't have any vital stakes in Syria. We have a commitment towards the Kurds who fought uh, ISIS. So we have to have something decent for these people, uh, not satisfy fully, but at least have something that protects them. And protecting them means protecting them from Turkey. So unlike what uh, you would say is re-engagement, my sense is more that this cooperation where the United States is recognizing Russia's primary uh, interest in Syria uh, and uh, offering to contribute, in fact, to cooperate on reducing the role of the two key regional powers present on the ground. This is Iran on one side, And that suits, of course, the third important party, Israel, and Turkey on the other side. And that will uh, suit the uh, Kurds, of course, uh, will suit the regime, but might also suit Russia uh, because it is it finds uh, Erdogan a difficult partner. So for the for Europe, this. Uh, really means that at the moment, Europe is watching uh, this sort of reshaping of the uh, balance of forces on the ground uh, and is, is, is not coming in on one key issue, which is uh, to fight for, uh, to fight, of course, politically, diplomatically, to negotiate for humanitarian aid to go through channels that are not just assigned. That is not to allow Assad to monopolize, again, uh, all financial resources coming from abroad and uh, control this, the population by starving it here, punishing it there, distributing aid and rewarding wherever it wants to do that. So uh, I think where Europe needs to come in is, is exactly there. But my feeling is for the moment, it is just watching this reorganization and is not finding uh, much uh, uh, much of a role for itself because it is still a very strongly geopolitical uh, battle. But in the meantime, the humanitarian side of it, I think Europe is not uh, fulfilling a role it could actually uh, fulfill. So we'll come to the humanitarian situation a bit later on and talk about what Europeans can do. But Julian, you've been looking at the the regional dynamics for a very long time. Do you share Basma's assessment of what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's there's clearly a sense in which um, there's a new US administration, which, which is more pragmatic, frankly. It, it, it's less of a high priority issue. It's not being seen through the lens of fighting Iran in, in the region. And, and the, you know, the Trump administration were maintaining effectively a maximum pressure campaign aimed at combating the Russians and the Iranians in, in, in Syria. And the American, the new administration has come in and they're prioritizing humanitarian access, ceasefires, uh, the fight against ISIS. And that has opened up um, a space, a window for some kind of pragmatic engagement with Russia. We'll, we'll see where it goes. It's, you know, it's at the early stages. And I agree with Basma that the Europeans aren't really in the mix and need to be doing more to actually push that process forward. And, you know, the UN is also talking about a step-by-step -step transactional approach and things like um, putting greater pressure and, and, and carrots and sticks to open up aid access would be clearly part of that. But I think the other thing that hasn't been mentioned yet is that there is a degree of regional re-engagement here. And you see it with the Emiratis moving back into Syria. The Jordanian king just spoke with Assad recently. And, you know, there is clearly a, a, a regional shift to, to bring Assad back in 
to the fold. And that does also change dynamics. I mean, again, it takes the pressure off. It creates, in a sense, a gray zone for, for, for different things to happen in the country. And I guess the question is, is this all um, a process whereby Assad can reconsolidate, no questions asked? Or is it, as some of the regional players would would, would tell us, the Jordanians, and, and as some internationally, and I, I think this this you know it's it's a long shot, but it's a it's a fair bet, to, a, a fair a fair approach to say, can we get something out of this? Um, and I think you know, so there are these twin tracks going forward, and the Americans are pushing for something which is a bit more transactional. Some of the regional actors are. Um, Europe, I think, has to make up its mind about where it wants to go on Syria. Clearly, a broken state, a state that is collapsing, poverty. Um, Ralph will talk about the situation with refugees. I mean, this all means that this is still, this should still be an issue that drives European thinking, that is on the European political agenda. Um, but, but in terms of European reactivity and, and, and formulating some kind of strategic policy, we're, we're somewhat lacking. Well, let's look at that. I mean, this is the the biggest way in which Syria has been an issue for for Europeans. The 2015 political crisis around um, refugees seared uh, the political class in many different European countries. And it's something which hasn't gone away. There are 6.6 million refugees worldwide of whom... 5.6 5.6 million are hosted by neighbouring countries. We hear increasingly talks in Europe about sending Syrian refugees back to the country. But from what you have been saying, Basma, um, the prospects uh, for returnees are, are not uh, very uh, positive. Ralph, can you tell us a bit more about your work? Do, you, do, do Syrian refugees want to go back? Is it safe? What's the humanitarian situation like for, for people who, um, who've come here and who have who are um, in danger of being sent back? Um, well, Mark, we can't confidently say that Syria is safe for return. Uh, from our own research, you know, there is a sample bias of um, people who are actually able to return to Syria. Um, but not all people who are refugees are able to return. There are a lot of obstacles in their way, um, mainly financial issues, Issues of mandatory military conscription, being wanted by the army, um, and being on the blacklist basically of the regime. So it's really difficult to say that we're at a point where all refugees can return to Syria and that European governments can, you know, confidently, uh, return people to Syria. This is not the point where we're at. And this is actually antithetical to finding, uh, actual durable solutions that are in line with the UNHCR protection thresholds for safe return for Syrians, which have so far not been met by any government. Um, we can also add to that the lack of a any kind of monitoring mechanism of returns that are happening. I'm speaking mainly from Lebanon to Syria. And so the situation is a bit ad hoc and out of control at the moment. We see European governments acting in a way that is, uh, frankly, very worrying. Um, the situation on the border of Poland and Belarus is a crisis indicator of the fact that this has not gone away and will not go away if people don't act in a sustainable and durable way towards refugees. Um, and Julian, do you want to talk a bit more about about these calls for sending Syrians refugees back? Where Where do they come from? So, I mean, there's clearly a kind of uh, populist narrative out there that, that's 
played into kind of right wing politics throughout Europe in the past few years that, that refugees need, need to go back. But we, we've also seen a, a kind of a number of European governments beginning to talk about Syria being safe again, levels of conflict um, going down. And, and, you know, I don't think there have been any active returns, but it's something that is being placed on the agenda. And I think it's, um, you know, I think Ralph laid it out very clearly. Con- clearly, conditions are not right. Um, it's hugely dangerous on the ground. There are huge risks. Um, it's not just about finances and economics, about security situation. And, and really, pushing refugees back would be, um, you know, pushing them back into the hands of, of an Assad regime that doesn't want them, doesn't want them and, and will, will punish them for it. So I think um, there needs to be a kind of strong mobilization where, where possible within Europe to resist this tendency. You know, there are clearly some refugees, particularly in the bordering countries, who are choosing to go back of, the, of their own volition. And, and, and you know, they, they have every right to do that. Some of them are, are regretting that decision and are clearly not finding a, a great place to land. And I think also part of the question is, in terms of the, the, the kind of debate that's now been having inter, happening internationally and possible step-by-step measures and transactional kind of deal-making with the regime, if, if one can call it that. But, you know, the question of whether basic standards, UN refugee monitoring mechanisms, um, housing and land and property rights, basic security rights. I mean, these are some of the core guarantees um, that, that the likes of Europeans need to be fighting for. I mean, it's one thing to say, OK, we can't get a transition. We can't get Assad out of power. But if Assad is going to stay in power and there's going to be any form of international reengagement with him, surely it needs to be on the basis of, of some of these core premises of, of security and protection for, for the Syrians who, who, are, who are going back and, and ensuring that Europeans aren't pushing them back until those conditions are met. In terms of the, the money that Europeans are spending on the humanitarian situation, how much of that is actually going into the parts of the country which Assad controls, Basma? Is this because in, in the early days of the conflict, on the earlier podcasts, we, when we talked about it, Europeans wanted to make sure they weren't, um, you know, unwittingly uh, entrenching Assad's control of the, the country. They, they did make a difference, I think, between. Um, humanitarian assistance and and some of the the you know more kind of long term uh, development funds that that used to go into Syria before um, it uh, collapsed into civil war. Well, I think what we have here is a a discussion about something that is I think not the point. The discussion in endless discussions in Brussels are about, are we providing humanitarian aid or are we providing early recovery aid or should we go into reconstruction? The answer is no, etc. And I think the issue is really which channels are used for any form of aid. I mean, if we had safe channels, which are not money, not diverted to Assad's uh, pockets to him and his circles, then we can even go for reconstruction. Where's the problem? The problem is really that this money is diverted and all sorts of very serious reports are telling us and, and warning countries of many European countries, most European countries, uh, go through uh, international humanitarian organizations. OCHA is one of them. They go through the Syrian Red Crescent. This is all controlled by Assad. The OCHA in Syria, in Damascus, cannot work without Assad's approval and money is used and distributed entirely under the control of the regime. So we can't just hide ourselves behind one finger and say uh, uh, the money is going through OCHA. Well, OCHA has problems. OCHA's money is being diverted. Are we looking at that? Are we just looking at the other way? That is, I think, a, a major issue. 
Another one, I think, is that we really need to look at at the size of the issue is much bigger than we are saying. Over a decade, Assad has succeeded in changing the demographics of the country, particularly the areas around not only Damascus, but key cities where uh, Sunni communities are mixed with uh, Alawi and other. Uh, so, so basically, the multi-sectarian uh, landscape of Syria has changed dramatically with the departure of all these poor refugees who have gone to the neighboring countries or elsewhere. Now, the return of these people is becoming extremely difficult because of a land and housing issue, which Julian just mentioned. And I think for Europe here, typically, why don't they step in and say, it's even with Russia, get Russia to announce any of these laws of confiscation of land, which are simply legalizing uh, the actual confiscation of land and, def- and that, therefore making it impossible for refugees to return to their homes. Can we do something about that? So it's not about military power. It's not about huge geopolitical uh, considerations. It's about laws as well. This is dramatic. This is de- de- decisive for the future of the country. But what leverage do Europeans have to to have an effect on decision making around those area around those sorts of questions, the legal questions that you're talking about, Basma? Well, they have the funds. Uh, the, the The Russians are uh, really eager to get something going in Geneva to be recognised by the EU, by by the international community, by the UN, and therefore open uh, the 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 way to uh, reconstruction funds, lifting of certain sanctions. I mean, the EU has EU and the US has a lot in, uh, of of uh, means to pressure, has a lot of leverage. Uh, And that can be negotiated with Russia. We need safe channels. Can we go through the private sector? Can we go through NGOs that Assad doesn't control? Can we uh, ensure that these laws are going to be uh, repelled or uh, um, cancelled and not recognized by anybody, including Russians on the ground? Because this is allowing Iran, for example, and and some communities coming from outside the country to buy land, to confiscate land, to uh, and and all of this is happening while we are discussing whether a little bit more aid should go in or ten thousand refugees are able to to return. It's it's not happening. It's not happening. It the bigger and much more serious and decisive changes are happening happening in the meantime. Okay, Julia, I'd like to go back to you to talk a bit more about the what Europeans can do about this sort of political process and around the issues that, that Bassan's been mentioning. But first, Ralph, can you say a bit more about, you know, looking at the situation on the ground, what the conditions in areas of return are and, and, and what, what practical things you think Europeans could do to try and improve the situation there? Definitely. Uh, first, I just want to point to a really important uh, issue that Basma mentioned, which is the return issue is definitely an issue of demographic change in Syria because of who is being let into the country in the first place to return. Okay, So this is the first thing we really have to come to understand. And the main issue around return is that an overwhelming majority of people who are returning, who are thinking of returning, don't even have access to you know, adequate information about the area that they want to return to. And so most of these voluntary returns that are happening that we've mentioned are happening 
in an, you know, a sphere where there is no adequate information, a lot of the times we hear people telling us that, you know, we asked our relatives how the situation is in our neighborhood. They told us it was good. And then when we got there, it was the actual opposite. Um, and we asked our neighbors why they said that it was good. And they said that they were afraid to say that it was bad and to speak up about that. And so we have people complaining that they're really are no prospects of livelihood. Uh, people are barely scraping by making any kind of wages. Um, usually people are structurally unemployed or just fully unemployed. Um, there's barely any electricity, uh, barely any running water. Um, I think uh, the issue is even worse for people who undergo split returns, for example. So for example, when uh, male family members cannot go back to Syria because of issues with forced military conscription. And so women, uh, family members feel like they have to go back and face a lot of issues around their gender. In their areas of return, they're often ostracized by their community. They're not fully accepted. Um, some people who don't return to their original neighborhood often have a hard time reintegrating. So it's really not an ideal situation, Mark. Julian, um, you've been trying for very long time, almost as as long as our MENA program has existed at ECFR to to think in practical ways about how Europeans could use their different diplomatic and financial assets to make life a bit more livable in Syria. Where have you got to now? <laughs> um, well, look, I think um, it's the the conditions are are immensely hard, and and you know no one has 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 huge influence to shape developments. But but where am I? I mean, I think we are still in the same place of 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 trying to press Europeans to recognise that this needs to stay on the agenda. Um, that this is an issue that matters to Europe by dint of not just the kind of immense human suffering, but geographical proximity and, and associated interests. Um. And, and they they need to, to to have an approach. They need to recognize the need for for Europeans to to kind of have a a, a strategy towards this ongoing crisis. It's not over. Um, and yet again, here we have Europeans um, flailing around, not really knowing where to go, how to respond to the fact that Assad is clearly here to stay for, for the immediate term, that the region is reengaging, that the Russians and the Americans are talking to other Europeans stand there as, in a sense caught waiting for others to do something. Look, you, many Europeans say there's nothing we can do, but but I think my sense is that, that they can do more and they need to do more and they do have tools. And I, I do agree with Basma um, that, that, that Europe can bring some influence to bear. And as as Ralph and Basma have, have kind of reflected a bit on, on state collapse and suffering and the changes on the ground, I think it's clear that um, trying to use some of these European tools to improve those immediate conditions, to open up some space clearly needs to be an immediate priority. And you see the likes of the Americans engaging with that, with the Russians. You see the UN talking about that more and more. You know, why are the Europeans not getting into that mix? Um, but, I, but I also think, you know, Euro Europeans need to kind of reconceptualize how they're thinking about the politics of it all. I mean, Europe keeps talking in a sense about a transition or UN resolutions. You know, they may not believe in it, but they keep talking about it. And I think somehow we need to move towards a longer term vision of change. You know, how can we support Syrians to stand on their own feet, 
to survive the brutality of the economic collapse of the regime and, you know, to, to bear the struggle going forward. And I think we need to be more creative there. You know, Asma, Basma talked about working through the private sector. How can we work through the diaspora? How can we help using our, our, our humanitarian and our stabilization support to, to work around the regime and, and, and strengthen some levers of Syrian society for this longer struggle? So, I mean, th- there's a bunch of, of, of hard challenges, dilemmas to face, but I think First and foremost, Mark, we need to recognize it's still a problem. We need to kind of roll up our sleeves and think this matters for Europe. And we need to invest some some thinking and, and a longer term agenda in terms of um, something that is both pragmatic in terms of immediate opportunities, but remains principled in terms of continuing to, to, to help Syrians maintain that longer term vision of change. OK, well, we're coming up to the end of our of our time, but maybe just let you each say one one last thing thing that that you would urge european leaders to do if you were if you were king for a day and able to to direct some european attention away from from other issues um towards this basma do you want to go first yes thank you mark i think you know i mentioned earlier humanitarian aid when you were asking me about uh, you were asking me more a political question but 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 this is what you call the nerf de la guerre at the moment is humanitarian aid there is nothing going into syria from the west that can help change anything and that is why seeking in trusted intermediaries uncompromised channels negotiating those making those actual conditions for europeans to step in and help syrians i think this is uh, not just an issue of humanitarian aid what where we need we we need the europeans and they are the first to be concerned with the issue of Syria. Arab countries are stepping in in different ways. They want to move Syria away from Iran. Maybe they will succeed. I have no possibility to say today what they're doing is wrong. I'd like them to put some conditions on Assad and not just go for normalization without conditions. This is unacceptable. But, but going for normalization at a certain cost, under certain conditions, stop arresting people, release some people, let the uh, uh, independent commission visit p- prisons and detainee, deten- detention centers, etc. These are conditions that I would have liked to see the Emirates and Jordan put. Unfortunately, they're not doing that. But we are in for the long term. The population wants to resist, wants to exist under a very, very low ceiling, unfortunately, but wants to survive, not just be uh, terrified constantly by, by, the, by the Assad uh, security forces. So what we're saying here is, can we negotiate a small lifting of this unbelievably low and heavy ceiling that, that is on top of Syrian society? That is what needs to be done because we will be uh in for that for the long term okay what about you ralph i think honestly the way the situation needs to be dealt is really for you know donors and governments to listen to refugee-led organizations in the surrounding areas there are a plethora of them they are extremely underfunded but they are the first line of contact with the refugee community they know exactly what the refugees want really we need to build more symbiotic mutual growth understandings between donors um, and have them really localize their aid to refugee-led organizations 
who know exactly what their beneficiaries need, who just really need the money to get their program started. So I think while Syrian refugees have a really hard time going back, not all of them can go back, even if they choose to. Not all of them can get resettled to third countries, for example, and not all of them can claim asylum. We really need to think about how to improve their lives while they are waiting for their access to durable solutions in these host countries such as Jordan, such as Lebanon and Turkey. And I feel like a great way to start really is localizing aid to refugee-led organizations in these countries. Okay, last word to you, Julian. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't differ with what's been said. I think that, that there is a degree of re-engagement. There's, there's talk of conditionality and step-by-step. I mean, this is something that, that people have talked about for a long time. I think it, it, it's a hard, immensely difficult challenge. But Europe needs to somehow say, look, we need to help Syrian society. Um, we need to press not just on the Assad regime, but on Russia, on the regional actors that re-engaging. We need to align with the Americans to come up a start strategy here so that um you know the carrots and sticks can align to try and incentivize some increased space on the ground not to get a transition or a political process because that's pretty dead in the water these days but at least um to ameliorate conditions on the ground to to help Syrians themselves stand on their own feet have a degree of local agency um you know survive day by day and and, and even do more than that to to own um, the challenges and the struggles that they're going to face in the period coming up. And it's going to be, you know, this is not a problem that's going away, Mark. This is going to be a long generational problem now. Um, Syria is going to be a mess for a long time to come. Um, and we really need to be thinking about how we can do more to help Syria and survive that, both through this kind of step-by-step conditionality, but also thinking more creatively how to work around the regime and the space that might already exist. Okay. Well, quite a downbeat end to the conversation, but it's, it's, um, uh, obviously an, an issue which Europeans have got historic responsibility to, to engage with. And if we don't engage with it in a more constructive way, I'm sure that we'll find ourselves living through the, the aftershocks of it in, in, in other ways in the years to come. We've got one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Um, What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Basma? Well, I would recommend, as I said, the importance of the humanitarian aid. I'd recommend a recent paper by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, uh, titled How the Assad Regime Systematically Diverts Tens of Millions in Aid. Great. What about you, Julian? Mark, I've got to be honest, I have not really advanced in my reading since I was last on this podcast about a month ago. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm still reading this, this black Spartacus, the story of the life of, of Toussaint Louverture the, 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 and the slave revolt in, in Haiti. Okay. And what have you got on your bookshelf, Ralph? Uh, I'm currently reading the book Without by Yunus Al-Akhzami, which just came out in a stellar translation by Dorada for publishing and translation in the UK. Um, it's about the struggles of being intersex and transgender in Saudi Arabia. And I feel like even though we read fictional books, they can really inform um, our work as humanitarians by showing us like real stories and real struggles. Fantastic. We'll put out links to all those publications on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do help us by giving us a positive rating, uh, five star rating, hopefully, uh, and a nice review on whatever platform you use to download this podcast on. But for now, from Basma Kodmani, Ralph Haddad and Julian Barnes-Dacey and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. 
The researcher of this episode is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlena Riegel.